My name is Dave. I've been a member of this congregation for the last couple of months and it's been great to be welcomed and embraced during our short time among you. Uh, although some of the text will be up on the screen, it will probably be helpful if you keep your Bibles open at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, because we'll be going through some of that together. Uh, if you find it helpful, also there is an outline in the, um, in the order of service that you received when you came in this morning. Uh, let me pray again as we come to God's word in this passage. Heavenly Father, we know that the wisdom of this world is futile in answering questions about you. We thank you that you have made yourself and your ways known through the message of the cross. Thank you that you have used people to bring that message to us at some point in our lifetime and again here today. Now as we come again to your word, please by your Holy Spirit enable us to grow not only in our understanding of your word, but also in our desire to respond to what we know to be true from what we learn from this passage today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it is Anzac Day today and um, it is a, um, uh, my personal connection actually with Anzac Day is that my grandfather was one of the originals one of the men that landed at Gallipoli on the morning of the 25th of April, 1915. So it's a very personal connection. I guess it's a claim to fame, you could say, if we like to use that word. In fact, uh, in our Bible study this week just passed, I, I asked the guys to share what their claim to fame was. And we had a good laugh about some of the very trivial things that people came up with, from being on the front page of the Bendigo Advertiser <laughs> to going to the movies with Bill Gates. Uh, you can ask um, uh, Nish about that one. A claim to fame is not exactly something that, uh, to boast in, though. We often have a bit of a laugh about it, but we all know what it's like to be near somebody who takes their claim to fame a little bit too seriously, boasting about it. Nobody likes a boaster, and if you want to be in a room full of people boasting, all you need to do is go to a school reunion. <laughs> I went to my 30-year high school reunion a couple of years ago. Many of them I hadn't seen for 20 or some of them even 30 years. I spent the night listening to people express their insecurities by what they boasted in. The fascinating thing that I found about the school reunion is that the pecking order from high school hadn't really changed very much. You know, the, the school captains were still the authority figures and the, and the nerds were down the bottom and everything in between. And uh, there, there were certainly uh, CEOs and school principals and a pilot, university lecturers, specialist doctors. Who, they were all there on the night that I was there, all these people. And then, of course, there was, yeah, there was me. <laughs> not, not a lot to go by there. Well, boasting, of course, is not just limited to the secular world. That was an issue, too, for the church in Corinth and can even cause problems for us in our churches today. At the beginning of this series on 1 Corinthians, um, one of the many things that Mike Taylor pointed out to us was at the beginning of this letter was that it was written to letters, uh, written to brothers and sisters in Christ, written to Christians, fellow believers in Christ. That's a key thing about this letter. Kevin followed that up uh, in the following one when he preached by highlighting that it was through the message of the cross, a message which is foolishness in the world's eyes that the Corinthians themselves came to grasp the wisdom of God. Last week, Sam showed us that although the Corinthians had accepted the message of the cross, they were still behaving 
according to the values of the world and not embracing the wisdom of the cross. Sam asked the question, how do we address worldliness in the church? Those themes centering around the wisdom of the cross continue to flow through today's passage. And although these verses have a lot to say about leadership and teaching, we know that authority and influence in the church is not limited to those in formal positions of leadership. So as we go through, we will see that the issue, what the issues were for the Corinthians and then draw out some of the implications for us, whether we are leaders or not. Now, we can all have attitudes about leaders and leadership that can be unhealthy, and the Corinthians were no exception. Verse 3 in chapter 3 says this, You are still worldly, he says, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Paul has called out their childish behaviour in using superficial worldly criteria to boast in one leader at the expense of another within the church. Then he asks the question in verse 5, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Now he doesn't even say who. He actually says what. The answer he gives to his own question is not, is not either CEOs or commanders-in-chief or anything like that, but he uses the rather humble word servant. A servant who is, is one who does the bidding of their master. And in the case of Christians, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to eliminate any suggestion of status, he adds, through whom you came to believe. It's not in whom you came to believe. The Corinthian Christians didn't believe in Paul, in Apollos, but he's saying it was through us. And as Chrissy highlighted in, this, in the children's spot, it's through these people that people are hearing the message of the cross. Apollos and Paul were merely instruments through whom God brought the message of the cross to the Corinthians. And then just to make sure make himself crystal clear about his lack of status. He keeps going and he says this, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Even their roles were assigned to them by God, not chosen by them personally. In other words, it's a little immature to rank him and his fellow leaders in order of importance. I was talking to a guy at a church the other day who told me about the time the archbishop visited their church. The people in the church were a pretty down-to-earth lot and some of them didn't know who the archbishop was. And so when he turned up at the church without his official robes or anything, one of the blokes at the door greeted him and called his friend over to meet the new guy. Whether we are an archbishop or not, as Christians, at the end of the day, we are all servants of the Lord Christ. There's no status in amongst that. And at this point, the Apostle Paul shifts um, to the farm. He moves to the farm to begin to make his point clear. And he says this in verse 6 and 7. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. Now referring here to the whole church as it was established and nurtured. Um, but God made it grow. He repeats this idea in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. As Sam highlighted last week from chapter 2, verse 12, we have 
We have received the spirit who is from God. We have received the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. Paul is acknowledging from the outset that it is not him or his fellow workers who have the power to change people's lives. Only God can do that. Now, there's an expression in Chinese that I love. Uh, it's ba miao zhu zhuang. My Chinese is not so good there. Ba miao zhu zhang. It's a story based on, it's a based on a story of a farmer who sowed a seed. He sowed some seeds in the field. And after they sprouted, the, the farmer thought he could pull the young shoots a few inches higher uh, to make them grow a little bit faster. Oh, if I only just pull them a little bit higher. Um, now, with or without a green thumb here in this room, we all know that that's just not going to work. Not going to work at all. We may plant seeds and water them, but we can't actually make them grow. We don't make them do the growing. And in a similar way, this passage is reminding us the seeds of gospel growth can only grow through the work of God. That's always tempting in any form of ministry to think that we deserve the credit for people becoming Christians or people growing as Christians. It's also a very humbling experience to revisit a ministry or something that you've been involved in in the past and you've been away for a while and you come back and visit. I remember leading a beach mission team for a number of years back in the 90s, going back a while there. Um, Beck, I saw Beck here, she was on that team, she was very small at that time and uh, her and the family there. And I returned to visit the team a year later after I'd left the team. Now, I found, uh, surprisingly, things were actually continuing on quite well without me. During the previous years as head honcho, I thought that I was indispensable. But here they were getting on with it. In fact, a lot of new people had come on board and were doing things that I used to do even better than I did. And to be frank, that was quite a humbling experience for me. Uh, in hindsight, it was God's way of reminding me that I have nothing to boast in. I am only a servant. It is God who gives the growth. I was assigned a task as a servant for a period of time in that particular context and I needed to learn to celebrate the work that God was doing with or without me. Let's not forget, it is God who calls. It is God who assigns tasks. It is God who gives the growth. Now, Paul and Apollos were not in competition with, the, uh, with God and they were not in competition with each other either. This is what it says in verse 8. The man who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. One purpose. One purpose. What is that purpose exactly? Well, let's keep looking through the text and see if there's any clues to answer that question. Let's have a look at verse 8 and 9. The man who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field, God's building. Now, Paul here moves from the farm to the city. Uh, he, he moves from the watering can uh, to the brickwork uh, in the city. Now, firstly, in verse 10 and 11, he says, The leaders are challenged to remember that Jesus is the foundation and to always base their service on the message of the cross. They are held, held accountable for how they do this. 
But in verse 16, he picks up some language in the, uh, the language of the temple. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and, and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now when it says that God's spirit dwells in you, it's not actually like that other passage that you might be familiar with in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where it says your individual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now here it's, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, here it is the body of believers um, together. You yourselves, uh, or as we like to say here in Australia, use, use all, <laughs> plural, use all. I love use all. So in one sense, all of us have a role assigned to us as we seek to prevent the temple from being destroyed, whether our leadership, whether our leadership or our authority is formal or informal. Our one purpose is to play our part in making sure we build everything we do on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we stop ourselves from, in the language of Paul, Destroying the church. Very strong language, isn't it? How do we build up God's people on the foundation of Christ? I just want to highlight three things quickly. Three things to consider. Firstly, let's remember who we are. Let's remember who we belong to. Who we belong to. Let's pick this up from verse 18 and following. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that he's, he, the thoughts of the wise are futile. Now, a few weeks ago, Kevin reminded us from this chapter, chapter uh, from chapter 1, that the message of the cross is either foolishness or wisdom. What we are unable to do, God does on our behalf. We are unable to live up to God's standard. But Jesus did. Then he swapped places with us to die on the cross and set us free from God's wrath and reconcile us to God. On Anzac Day, we commemorate the sacrifices of so many people fighting for our freedom around the world. But there is no greater sacrifice in the history of the world than the ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross, God himself who died for us. A sacrifice that gives us true freedom. Freedom to be reconciled to God. Freedom to approach God. In his resurrection, Jesus showed that the cross was not foolishness after all, but rather the cross is actually God's secret wisdom for those who believe in Jesus. Which is why he says in verse 18, if any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Paul is effectively saying, only when you become a fool in the eyes of the world, you become wise in God's eyes. There is one thing in life that is worth boasting in. It is the message of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
he says in chapter 1, verse 31. But then it gets really interesting because a lot of the ideas that Paul has been tossing around in these chapters leading up to chapter 3 seem to come together in a bit of a conclusion in verse 21 and following. So then. Don't you love it when you see the word so then in a passage? Because you know it's saying some kind of conclusion. I love looking for those words. So then. No more boasting about men. So then. No more boasting about men in people, in human wisdom. Why? Well, because of what's next. Check this out. I love this part in the passage. Verse 21, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now let's think about these words for a moment. World, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Now, let's explore this a bit. It's interesting to observe that all the very things that we are anxious about are explored, uh, are mentioned in this. We're anxious about the world. We're anxious about life, death, the present, the future the foolish values of the world that demand our attention, the fleeting moments of life that we think define our meaning, the fear and insecurity of death that hangs over us all, the constant urgency of the present and the uncertainty of the future. Because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, none of these things need to have dominion over us any longer. If we belong to Christ, we know that the world as we know it is only temporary. We belong to the one who will one day make a new heaven and a new earth that will be ours to enjoy forever. Jesus said in John chapter 16, I have told you these things so that in me you have, may have peace. In this world you may have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is not all. Think about the interplay between these words, life in the present, death and the future. If we belong to Christ, then this life in the present, as we know it, with all its struggles and challenges, will no longer be a place we focus on just surviving but a place to serve God, to serve the God to whom we belong. Because we belong to Christ, our life will take on a deeper meaning and purpose as we serve the one who gave us life. God is in control. God is sovereign in bringing about his purposes in my life. I don't need to live in a state of confusion when there is a bigger picture there. If we belong to Christ, then death no longer has the last word. We can face death with confidence because we too, like Jesus, will be raised to life. Our future is not something to be anxious about because we know where we are going. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That is the God who we belong to. We are his in Christ. That is the message of the cross that is at the centre of everything that we do. 
What an incredible message. What an incredible God that we belong to. How do we stop ourselves from destroying the church that we belong to? How do we build up God's people? First and foremost, we keep Jesus as the foundation. We remember who we belong to, whose we are. We remind each other of the message of the cross over and over and over again. The message of the cross may be foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We can all say a big amen to that. But more than that, more than that, when we remember who we belong to, then it prevents us from focusing on the inconsequential. When we remember who we belong to, it prevents us from focusing on the inconsequential. Have a look again at verse 21. It says this, All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Now the Corinthians were causing factions in the church by fighting over which leader they belonged to. It wasn't because they were teaching different theology, but it was probably a personality thing, style or something superficial. It led to jealousy and quarrelling. Paul reminded them in verse 7 that the leaders, of course, were in themselves were not anything, but God, however, was everything. God had the power to make things grow, not the leaders. And sometimes we say, oh, they were just fighting over nothing. You know, we all know some of the dumb things we've had fights over in our families. Thinking of fighting over nothing. I remember my... One of the biggest fights my parents had was over whether to prick the sausages when you're cooking them or not. <laughs> you serious? <laughs> now, there's probably deeper issues there, but, uh, <laughs> but what was the most damaging thing about fighting over childish things, over inconsequential things, is it's actually distracting them, distracting them from the message of the cross. By boasting in only one leader, by attaching themselves to only one leader, the Corinthians are actually missing out on the ministry of all the other leaders. All things are yours. Uh, they don't belong to one leader. All those leaders belong to them. So they've mixed it up a little bit. Now, I've been here since Christmas, and since Christmas, there have been six different preachers in this pulpit since Christmas, not including me today. I'm number seven. Now, if I only focused on one of those because I liked his personality, then I would miss out on the richness of the message of the other preachers who are unpacking God's word. It's a little bit like what the Corinthians are doing here. They're making superficial decisions about different people and they're missing out on the richness of what these other people could bring. And in the concept, in, in, as a result... They're undermining the message of the cross. They're moving away. They're getting distracted. Well, the inconsequential things that the Corinthians were jealous and quarrelling over were the leaders. What about in churches today? I remember one church I served in and, and people were arguing about the colour of the chairs that the church had to buy. The colour. Another church, the quarrels were over where people could sit in the pews. Oh, no, you can't sit there. Sometimes churches have divisions over music, morning tea, 
the exact position of the lectern. It sounds a bit silly, doesn't it? Now, I've only been here for a few months. I don't know a lot about what things people argue about here. But no matter what church we attend, the sad thing about jealous quarrelling is that we can be so distracted and consumed by these inconsequential issues that we lose sight of the cross. We lose sight of what we're really on about as a church. Surely we don't want to distract people from the message of the cross by quarrelling over foolish things, inconsequential things. So how do we stop ourselves from the destroying the church that we belong to? How do we build up God's people? When we remember who we belong to, then it prevents us from focusing on the inconsequential. Sure, we need to make decisions about things, of course. But let's not the insignificant matters take centre stage. Well, briefly, the final thing that I want to mention here in terms of things that will prevent us from destroying the church is to remember that God knows. God knows. This passage has language of the work we do to build up the church being tested and shown for what it is. If we had more time, we could explore that a little bit more. But if you'd like to talk over morning tea about it, we can talk about it more. But three times in this passage, uh, the language of reward is used. Verse 8, chapter 3, each will be rewarded according to his own labour. Verse 14, he will receive his reward. Verse 5, each will receive his praise from God. Now each time it is used, it's not in the context of serving God as a means to salvation. Of course we know that we're saved by grace. We don't earn our salvation. Salvation is not a reward. That is a very important point that we understand as Christians Salvation is not a reward, but we earned it. It's a gift given by God. And for some of you who are maybe from a Roman Catholic background, this passage is not talking about burning. It's not a, a grounds for the doctrine of purgatory. There's nothing in Scripture that actually justifies the understanding of purgatory. But why is this language of rewards woven into this text in this chapter? In the immediate context, the language of rewards in these verses is referring to the faithfulness of leaders in focusing on the message of the cross. We already know from verse 16 and 17 that we are all the temple of God together and we're all involved in serving God together, building on the foundation of the Lord Jesus or responsible for building up the church as God's fellow workers. But God takes... This gathering here today, God takes this gathering, this temple as he puts it in verse 17, he takes it very seriously. Very seriously. And if he takes it seriously, we should too. Although God is the one who makes things grow as we serve him as fellow workers, God wants us God wants to remind us that he notices how we serve. Sure, he's working through us, but he notices how we serve. God is not like a parent who stands looking at his mobile phone while his kids are scoring goals on the soccer field. Now, I'm sure some of the parents out here might have been guilty of that at some point in their life. We don't need to ask God, Oh, Dad, did you see that? Did you see that? Because, of course, God is watching 
He's not distracted by his mobile phone. Which at one level is sobering because we're all held to account. God knows. But it's also a source of encouragement. For all of you who have served faithfully behind the scenes where no one notices, putting out the chairs, cleaning, serving in the kitchen, giving people lifts, caring for the sick and the lonely, even making an effort to be here each week for some of you is very difficult. But you make the effort to be here to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Patiently taking care of young children in all your exhaustion. Mothers know particularly what that's like. Even though you might have been safely serving people in church to build up the body for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, nobody gives you the recognition you think you deserve. Remember that God knows. One day, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Take heart from that. Take heart from the fact that God knows. We don't have to perform for other people. God knows. Well, to conclude then, whatever we happen, wherever we happen to live in this world, gathering together as God's people will always be a part of our lives. Church is not an optional extra. So as people who belong to God, here and now, let's work hard to encourage each other to remember who we belong to. Remind ourselves of the God that we belong to and the message of the cross. Let's also be alert to the danger of focusing on the inconsequential. Let's hold ourselves accountable to that. And no matter whether people acknowledge us or not, let's be encouraged in our hearts to know that God knows. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, as we live in this life in the present, with all its struggles and challenges, fleeting moments of joy, help us to remember that we belong to you that this present life has meaning and purpose because we belong to you, because you give us the opportunity to serve you. We thank you that death no longer has the last word because we belong to you. Thank you that our future is not something to be anxious about because we know where we are going. We know that we belong to you. Because we have all these amazing things in Christ, Please help us not to get distracted by the inconsequential. Help us to always keep coming back to the message of the cross. Help us to take your gathering of people seriously, as you do. Help us to be sober-minded about your knowledge of how we build, but mindful and encouraged that you know all the little things that we do in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.